Hebrews 5.11 through 6.3. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Please be seated as we pray. Father, we just prayed in our song, Speak, O Lord, through your holy word. So now we've heard it read. In a very real sense, we have heard your word, you have spoken. There's a certain sense in which all of us need to grasp what is in these words, what you've said with greater clarity. So just collectively, it is our prayer that in this, uh, this time we have in front of us, you would help us to see and understand, help us to hear your word, hear your voice. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would penetrate our hard hearts, plow the stony ground. God, that is a work of your spirit. It's not something I can manufacture or anyone here can manufacture. So we're asking for a work of your spirit as we do each week. By your Spirit, move mightily in our midst. Help me and all of us to hear you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe some of you caught it last week, but nobody called me out. Could be you guys were being Canadian nice. In last week's exposition of 414 through 510, I totally skipped verse 10. You know the verse that says, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You preach on a passage that includes a verse like that and don't even comment on it? Sounds like dweeby preaching right there. So let me defend myself. The move was actually intentional. And I hope that by the end of the sermon you'll see what it was that I was doing and skipping it then. So to anyone who was here last week and isn't here today, please accept my humblest apologies. You'll miss out on the explanation, just like you're missing out on the apology right now. But by way of orientation, I just want to start by saying who this Melchizedek figure is, because he's referenced there in 510. Melchizedek appears really out of the blue in Genesis 14. It's quite an odd portion of Genesis. He's a priest. He shows up just after a battle. 
Abraham pays him a bunch of money, and then he disappears. It's really quite curious. And what's most curious is his name and his title, which seem to be one of the focuses of Genesis 14. We're told his name is Melchizedek, which translated means king of righteousness. We're also told he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So he's the king of peace. And we're told that he's a priest of the Most High God. So in Genesis 14, a mysterious figure shows up, totally out of the blue. He's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace, and he is the priest of the Most High God, and then he disappears, seemingly forgotten from the pages of Scripture. And centuries pass. And then, in Psalm 110, he reappears. The only other reference to him in all the Old Testament. And in Psalm 110, the great King David is speaking of his greater son. And this greater son is said to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, this is actually quite interesting stuff. Gets your mind going. Some of you may be already putting some of the links together. You can see where this is heading. But the author of Hebrews has yet to offer any kind of explanation for who Melchizedek is or why he's quoting it. All he did is in 5.6, he quoted Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then there's verse 10, which I mentioned, where he talks about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He hasn't explained himself. And up until this point, we don't know why Melchizedek's being referenced. He leaves us hanging just like I left you hanging last week. What's up with Melchizedek? And if you look, if you're just kind of scanning from 5.11 all the way through 6.12, which is really kind of the main section, we're doing a portion of it today, that's really the main section, there is no mention of Melchizedek. He starts in on Melchizedek in 5.10, and then he stalls. What gives? This random, curious illusion, then silence. But the silence is eventually broken. So in 6.13 to 20, when he kind of resumes his theological explanation, he ends in verse 20 making reference again to be, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then 7-1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham. Or 7-10. This is a weird reference. He was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Or 7-15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. In verse 17, we see Psalm 110 quoted again, your priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of chapter 7, really, is about Melchizedek. So it's not like he's just never going to explain it to us, but 5.11 through 6.12, he leaves that subject entirely. Now, if you just kind of cut out 5.11, I'm going to go all the way through verse 20 just because uh, 
he kind of builds up there in 6.13 to 20. If you just cut it out, and I'm, I'm going to read from 5.10 and then pick up in 7.1. And listen to how seamlessly that flows. Listen. Starting in 5.9. And being made perfect, he, he, that's Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, 7.1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. So you see, it just picks right up. It would make sense. There, there, what's going on here is that there is some sort of interruption in his flow of thought. 5.11 through 6.12 is this interruption from what he's trying to do. I'm about to talk about Melchizedek, and now all of a sudden I'm talking about something else for a series of verses. In fact, 6.20... And 5.10 are almost identical. A priest after the order of Melchizedek is how 5.10 ends. 6.20 ends, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, what the author begins in 5.10, he resumes in 6.20. So, 5.11 through 6.12 are an interruption. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you an important announcement. Why? Why the interruption? And that's really the crucial question we need to understand. That's been the whole point of what I've been trying to show you so far, that it is an interruption. So you go, why does he get interrupted? Or why does he interrupt himself? That is the crucial question of this sermon. There's a second important question as well, and that's what's the big deal about Melchizedek? So in my sermon this morning, I want to help us to find answers to those two questions. My whole sermon will be organized around those two questions that are that important. So first, we're going to answer why the interruption. And second, we'll answer what's the big deal about Melchizedek. So why the interruption? What's the big deal about Melchizedek? So let's look first at why the interruption. Now we know that the author of Hebrews is excited to talk about Melchizedek. He has something to say. It's burning inside him. He wants to get there. Something he knows that the people he's writing to need to hear. We know that because as we saw in chapter 7, he spends a whole chapter on Melchizedek. But why does he interrupt himself? Why does he stall out just as he's getting going? Well, we begin to see the answer in verse 11. It begins about this, Melchizedek and Jesus' priest in general, but specifically Melchizedek, about this, we have much to say. In other words, i got a whole sermon on Melchizedek. I've got a lengthy exposition on Jesus' high priest. But just as he starts his sermon, he notices a few yawns. He notices the people squirming in the pews. They don't have a stomach for this kind of rigorous exposition of the Bible. And that's why he continues in 5.11, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's interesting, that word dull in the Greek is the exact same word you see in chapter 6, verse 12, 
so that you may not become sluggish. Dull and sluggish are the same word. Your translation might even translate them the same way. This whole section is on this issue, their sluggishness, their dullness of hearing. They aren't ready for what he's about to say about Melchizedek because they are dull or sluggish of hearing. Imagine you bring a delicious meal over to someone's house, a family's house, only to discover that the kids in the home haven't moved past drinking milk. The six-year-old's still drinking from a baby bottle. The eight-year-old carries around a sippy cup and can't handle chewing or swallowing solids. The ten-year-old carries around a milk bag like it's an IV. It's kind of a preposterous idea, isn't it? But it wouldn't be normal. And not only would it be not normal, it would be alarming. It would be dangerous. Well, that's the illustration that the author uses to say how he feels about them. Listen to verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He knows what they need. He knows they need meat. And he wants to give them meat. He's brought meat over for them to eat. He's begun to serve the meal. And then he has to stop. Because these people cannot understand cannot imbibe a meal of meat. They cannot handle this kind of rich, Christ-exalting expositions of God's Word that place moral demands on their lives. They have become dull of hearing. They're stuck on basic principles. They are unskilled in the Word of righteousness, so they can't even distinguish good from evil. They're used to being spoon-fed little morsels of truth detached from the careful study of the Scriptures, detached from any call to moral living, all with a generous dose of God loves you, God's for you, Jesus died to save you from their sin, your sins, but no clear wrestling with the Word of God. And so, they are not ready for His double-barreled, full-on exposition of Melchizedek from Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Now, he'll get to it any, anyways. But before he does, he feels the need to stop himself and jolt them out of their doldrums. He is doing this. He's stopping himself from where he wants to go so he can shake them from their lethargy. And I believe that God wants to do the same for some of us today. Let me ask you a question. How long have you been a follower of Christ? Christ. 
Some of you, maybe not even followers of Christ here this morning, and you're going to hear this kind of rebuke to people who should know the truth of God's Word and, and this call to really dig into the Word of God. And for you, as you hear this, just, just know our, our faith is founded not on our personal experiences merely, not just on uh, some spiritual idea that's your opinion versus my opinion. It's founded on the Word of God. So as you hear this, just know this is, this is a good word. The whole Bible is something you can dig in and, and you can be compelled by what it has to say or not compelled. I think you will be compelled. If you're a new believer here with us this morning, only been a Christian for a short period of time, you're going to hear this call and, and it, it's, a, it's a good warning to you not to go a certain path, but instead to go down a path where you really dig in to God's word. But if you have been a believer for a long time, and you're in our midst. I have some questions for you. Have you ever tried to figure out Melchizedek? Why he's there in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 and nowhere else? Or, as Hebrews will later do, have you ever grappled with why Jeremiah 31 mentions a new covenant? What does that suggest about the other covenants God's made and how does that all connect to Christ? Or have you ever read carefully the teachings of, of God in the Old Testament on the tabernacle and said, what does this do? What, how does this relate to Christ? Or have you ever wondered as you're slogging through the bloodbath of Leviticus and Numbers and the sacrificial system, what that sacrificial system was designed to point us to and why God did it that way? Those are just examples from the book of Hebrews. Have you ever done anything like that where you're reading through whole sections of the Bible and you're grappling with how does this relate to this? Or has your spiritual journey consisted of moving from Blackaby's experiencing God to Warren's purpose-driven life to Kronk's God's not dead? Now, I'm not belittling how God may have used those resources in your life. What I'm doing is challenging you. I'm saying, is the bulk of your, quote, Bible study and Christian growth really these other resources that haven't forced you to really grapple with all of what God said, where you come to know the whole counsel of God's word? Are you dull of hearing? Are you sluggish? Has God's word, a word of righteousness, been carefully poured over and understood so that you can discern good from evil, not with what you've heard from a pastor or your parents or a Christian book you've read, but what you've learned from the Word of God so that you have the mind of Christ. If not, this morning we need to get out the smelling salts. We need to splash some water on our face. Because as we'll see in 6, 4-11 next week, if we keep drinking only milk, it is possible that we could eventually die. The stakes are high. So why this interruption? It's our main question. Because the first people who received this letter 
were dull of hearing. They had no stomach for rich, Christ-exalting exposition of the Scriptures that places ethical demands on their lives. And when I say exposition, I'm not just talking about sermons, though that's what's about to happen in Hebrews, but I'm also talking about their own personal study. And so he needed to jolt them awake. He stops the sermon in the middle and says, Wake up! I really want you to hear what I'm about to say about Melchizedek. It's what you need, but you're not ready to listen, so I need to jolt you. I need to shake you awake. I want you to be able to hear my sermon on Melchizedek. That's why there's an interruption. But why is Melchizedek such a big deal? You're going to interrupt your sermon and get on everyone's case. I mean, maybe it's your fault that you chose a boring text like Genesis 14 and Melchizedek, which most people can't even pronounce. I mean, why are you preaching a sermon on that? I think that's our second question we need to answer in this sermon. Why is Melchizedek such a big deal? Why is he so eager to preach the sermon on Melchizedek? Or even more broadly, why is it so important to study the Scriptures in the way that Hebrews commends? Because it's not just Melchizedek, right? If if you're reading through the whole book of Hebrews, there's a lot there that goes on. So think about it. As we've already begun to dug into the book up to this point, to dig into the book up to this point, we see this mysterious son figure lurking in the Old Testament. And he's showing us how that son figure in the Old Testament ultimately finds its meaning in Christ. It was a shadow pointing to Christ. And he will go on, not only to show how Melchizedek points to Christ, but also to show how the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 points to Christ, how the tabernacle points to Christ, and how the sacrificial system points to Christ. Then he's going to show us from Old Testament saints, from expositions of the Old Testament, what it means to have true and saving faith. And when the book of Hebrews is not doing something like that, it's giving us strong warnings and ethical teachings like we saw in chapters 3 and 4, again, rooted in expositions of the Old Testament. Pretty much the entirety of the 13 chapters of Hebrews is this, Christ-exalting expositions that place ethical demands on us. So obviously, that kind of teaching, that Melchizedek kind of teaching is important to the author of Hebrews. Why? Why is it such a big deal? What's the big deal with Melchizedek? Well, we need to remember the situation of the Christians to whom this was written. You guys remember, they'd started well, right? Got off to a good start in their walk with Christ, but they were petering out. In chapter 12, verse 12, we learn that their hands are drooping, their knees are weak, and they were near to being entirely out of joint. Throughout our series, we've likened it to spiritual anemia. Not amnesia, but anemia. You guys know what anemia is, right? It's when our red blood cells aren't at the right level, and as a result... You feel constantly tired and worn down. Your body's weak. Your skin takes on a yellowish hue. It's like being the parent of young children. 
That's where this weary little church is. Maybe that's where you are this morning, too. Perhaps you're a new Christian, or maybe you've been a Christian a long time. But you find that you're easily unmoored. The slightest things can blow you off course. You're going through your life and you feel like, okay, now I've got it down. And it's just the littlest thing, the smallest thing that rocks your boat. And so you become weary and tired. Do you know what the solution to anemia is? Usually it's to change your diet. Get more vitamins. They especially want you to get iron and B12. Which means you have to start eating green things. Do you know what the solution to spiritual anemia is? Move from milk to meat. Change of diet. Or as chapter 6, verse 1 says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What are the elementary doctrines of Christ? Or as 5 tells them, the basic principles? Maybe you think of this elementary teaching, maybe you even read through this passage or heard about this idea of milk and solid food, and you think of basic principles Things like, okay, the milk is Jesus died for your sins, or God has a wonderful plan for your life, or God is good all the time. These kind of basic things that are really good foundational stuff, but it's also good to supplement ourselves with some other stuff. But it's interesting, if you look partway through verse 1, in, in through verse 2, we get six different things that the author of Hebrews says makes up the milk. It's really interesting to see what he defines as milk. So look at the first thing there in the middle. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. The milk, the basics, including, include understanding that we must renounce our sinful works that lead us to death. We need to turn away from the sinful part of us that holds us and clings to us, that's pulling us towards hell. We have to be able to Say, I renounce it. I turn from it. I change. That's not where I want to be or what I want to be embracing anymore. Repentance. And look at what's next. Not just repentance from dead works, but also faith towards God. You don't just turn from your sinful dead works. We turn away from them and toward God. We turn in faith toward God. We place our whole trust in God and the salvation that Jesus has provided for us through the cross. So we're... we're the word faith talks about it, it's entrusting yourself to something. We entrust ourselves to God, allowing Jesus to become our king. So that's how we come to Christ, through repentance and faith. That's more than a lot of Christians understand right there. Often we don't even talk about repentance anymore. But that's just the milk. That's not the next level. That's just the milk. But it doesn't just stop with those two. The next two are also important. It says, the next elementary principle is instructions about washings, or the New Living Translation says instructions about baptisms, or the King James Version puts it the doctrine of baptisms. You're going, washings or baptisms? That's pretty different. The word being translated can mean washing or baptism. Usually when it's singular, almost always when it's singular, it's baptism. Sometimes when it's plural, it's washings. 
But the context here suggests that it means baptisms. That's because once you repent and believe, the next step for the believer, as we'll see next week, is to be baptized. That's what shows that you belong to Christ. That's that's what shows how you belong to the community of God's people. So the milk, the milk includes understanding the importance of baptism to show our union with Christ and God's people. That's just the milk. And the next elementary principle goes along with baptism. It's the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands is a practice whereby you convey solidarity or union with somebody. So it seems likely that after a convert's baptism, the church in those days would gather and lay hands on the individual, maybe pray for them, but they would show their solidarity and union with them. For us, after someone's baptized, they stand up front and we walk by. We don't lay hands on them, but we shake hands with them. We greet them with a hug, a word of encouragement to show our union with them. Taken together, baptism and the laying on of hands show that they understand the importance of connecting with the community of God's people. They understand the importance of the local church. So I don't just come to Christ and then float off on my own. I get connected. I'm baptized in front of a group of believers. I'm laid hands on. I join with them. That's the milk. The milk also includes, as it goes on in verse 2, Understanding the resurrection of the dead. Note that it does not say the soul's entrance into God's presence upon the body's death. Well, that's actually an important distinction. Because we tend to focus on what happens the moment we die. That's our fixation as a Christian. Okay, what happens the moment we die? Now, the Bible does speak to this. But it focuses much more on what happens when Christ returns. You see, when Christ returns, His second coming, all that's broken in this world is made right. That means the power of death is undone when Christ returns. And that means those who are in Christ, their bodies are raised to reign with Christ, and then to enjoy the goodness of His kingdom forever. And those who are not in Christ are raised as well. But there, as we see in the last elementary principle, they face eternal judgment. See, God will judge everyone for their sin. Anyone who has persisted in rebelling against God, who has doggedly resisted God's gracious reign, said, I can be good on my own. I can figure out my own way to be an ethical and moral person. I can be an upstanding citizen my own way. I don't need to follow you, God of the Scriptures. Anyone who's doggedly persisted in that will be cast into an eternal place of heartache and pain that torments them eternally. God will judge. That's the milk. That's just the basic 101 stuff. Repentance and faith, baptism and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's the milk. 
Now, the church then hadn't quite gotten those things down yet, nor has the church today. As 5.12 says, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles, and so do we today. But that's an interesting thing. Did you catch that? The dole of hearing, those who, those who only drink milk, actually fail to understand the basic principles. I mean, you'd think that if you stayed on milk, if that's all you're drinking, you'd at least have the basics down. But no, and that's the irony here. Those who try to keep it simple and only focus on the gospel at the expense of rigorous study of the Bible end up leaving their people without even a basic understanding of the gospel. And our generation is proof of this. I don't know exactly when it started, perhaps in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s, but until about a decade ago, most of the pulpits across the Western world were fixated on this kind of keeping it simple, focusing on the gospel. It was uncommon to find someone who clearly and carefully taught the Bible. So people like J. Vernon McGee and John MacArthur and John Stott were exceptions, relics of a bygone era. Yet, with all that basics preaching, perhaps never in the history of Protestantism had a generation been so churched and so uneducated on the basics of the gospel. I would venture to say that less than a third of church-going Christians would understand more than, say, two of the six items listed as basics by the author of Hebrews. But the irony cuts both ways. Those who really plumb the depths of the Bible, who study it in all its richness, are the ones who end up knowing the gospel the best. And the book of Hebrews is the great example of this. No book does more in terms of digging into the depths of the Old Testament and showing how they relate to Christ. And yet... We could say no book is more Christ-centered, more gospel-rich, more Christ-exalting. So this is important for us to grasp. If we want the gospel to be what we focus on, if we want to make sure that that's what we're about and that's what we really get and never drift from that, what we need to do is not say that's all we're going to talk about, but we need to see all of the scriptures as they intertwine in that gospel so we see it with all its texture and all its depth and all the roots underneath it and all its substance. That's what will keep us knowing the gospel. When these weary, threadbare Christians are called to move beyond the basic principles of Christ. He's not telling them to leave the gospel behind. It's just the opposite. The way to know Christ and the gospel best is to dig into the Scriptures in all their Christ-centered richness. So, returning to our second question, what's the big deal about Melchizedek? The big deal as it's this kind of study that is the very antidote to spiritual anemia. I want you to hear God's heartbeat in this. He looks upon this group of Christians who started so well but are now flagging in their faith, finding it difficult to endure. And He knows just what they need. 
They need to know the Bible. They need to understand the shadows of the Old Testament and how they find their substance in Christ. They need to come to know Christ better and better by knowing Him from the actual pages of the Word that He had revealed to them. They need to see how the whole Scriptures hang together centered on Christ. And so that's what He gives them in the book of Hebrews. But as the author writes, he knows they're tuning Him out. They're not interested in what he has to say. Melchizedek? Come on. He imagines them perhaps dismissing this kind of study as just for the intellectuals. Relegating it to a a certain branch of Christians do that kind of Bible study, but not us. So he interrupts himself and he tells them the heart of the problem. They're dull of hearing. He warns them of the danger of dawdling in their immaturity. He wants to awaken them to the desire. He wants to awaken within them the desire to dig in to God's Word. Because that's the very thing they need. That's why he's excited about Melchizedek, not because it's some curiosity for him. He knows that's what they need. He knows, God knows, it's what we need. Remember that implausible story I told at the beginning about bringing a meal to a family whose children only drank milk, couldn't stomach solid food? Though implausible, imagine what those children would look like. Gaunt, malnourished, weakly and stunted, failing to thrive, susceptible to disease and sickness. Perhaps the possibility of dying prematurely. When God looked on that church that was only drinking milk, that's what he saw. Could it be that's how he sees the church today? So he tells us clearly in this passage, so clearly, what we need. We need to dig into the Bible to see Christ. We need rich, Christ-exalting preaching that also helps us to see the implications of the Bible for how we live our lives. We need to study the Scriptures to see Christ. Our closing song is one we usually sing before the sermon. It's kind of designed to be sung before the sermon. But I want us to close with it to make it a prayer, not just for the sermon, but for our whole lives. I want us to be saying, that's what we want to be as a church. Listen to the words. Your word, the scriptures, your word is living light upon our darkened eyes. Guards us through temptations makes the simple wise. Your word is food for famished ones, freedom for the slave, riches for the needy soul. Come speak to us today. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. 
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing that song and make that our resolution and our prayer. God, there are so many ways we become dull of hearing, but the dangers are so great. Father, I pray that you would use this sermon to cure us of our spiritual anemia or to warn us against going down the path that would lead to spiritual anemia. May we be a church ever increasingly that digs into your word and knows it better and better. In Christ's name, amen.